This is Entheogen, three human beings discussing generating the divine within while still being human beings. In this episode, recorded on March 16th, 2015, we continue our founder focused series and discuss Stanislav Graf. Stan. It's good old Stan. Stan the man. Yeah, it's cool how all his buddies refer to him as Stan, which is a shame because his name's Stanislav. Stanislav. If I, if I had that Actually, name, I'd, I'd insist that everybody refers to me by my full name all the time. You know, it's, it's really funny when I was, uh, it's, it had escaped me until like preparing uh, a little bit for the show. But when, when I was a young kid in New York City, I was, uh, I went from, I was changed, or I changed schools several times and I went to, uh, on the Lower East Side to St. St. Stanislav's for, uh, <laughs> for about six months. Huh. And I, th- I think it was fundamental in my upbringing. <laughs> I think it was the first seed that was planted. Nice. Well, he is the the patron saint of uh the microdose, I think. Um he you know, you guys don't know this. I met this guy. I met what? Stan Groff. What? Yeah. yeah. So I went to uh I was I was called to the Have you been saving that fact? Yeah, yeah. I never I never mentioned <laughs> that. That was so good. So I went I'm to impressed. this um conference out in Berkeley uh called Mindstates. Yeah. Mindstates. Yeah. Yeah, Mindstates. It was it was awesome. It was basically like a gathering of the psychedelicists of the time and uh I mean it basically opened with this like presentation um reviewing this amazing collection of like blotter art. This guy Mark McLeod um had this collection of blotter art oh, and I uh, actually I have that guy I have that guy's page open in a tab in my browser right a, now. In a tab. Tab, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, there's, there was a recent article um, that I think uh, talked about talked about this. I haven't read it yet, but I have I have the same same link queued up uh, in a in a tab as well. Um, and so anyway, it was a great overview of just like the state of you know research into psychedelics. This took place in uh, 2004, I think, something wow. like that. 2003, 2004. I think it was 2003, and it was the it was uh, Mind States Four out in Berkeley. And so I, I there there was a. Um, some blotter art actually that was uh, offered as as part of the the package when you bought tickets, and it was this really cool. Um, was it scratch and lick? Yeah, <laughs> 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 lick and trip. Uh, and it was it was obviously not dosed. Uh, it was just some some really cool you know blotter paper, um, but it was perforated, so it had this really cool look. And so I took this thing out, and I I actually walked around the conference with it at the ready. And every time I you know ran into or or saw. Um, you know, one of these presenters or somebody I kind of knew from the, you know, from the scene, um, I approached them and I just asked them to sign the thing. And so I ended up getting like, I don't know, 20 or 30 signatures, um, from all kinds of people. Um, you know, Alex and Allison Gray, uh, uh, Anne and Sasha Shulgin, uh, Stan Groff, uh, just a ton of people. It was really cool. Earth and fire Arrowhead were there, like the people from Arrowhead. Um, just to tell okay, you, you had to specify there the <laughs> <laughs> of Arrowhead, <laughs> or no, the earth, earth and fire, the people, the people, of the humans. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it just uh, there was wind. So, I the thing I asked, <laughs> <laughs> wind, wind wasn't there, wind couldn't make it. <laughs> you know, I oftentimes tried to have kind of like a, a reason, an angle to approach these people, not just like, hey, sign my blotter. Um, and so, and I was actually very curious to talk to Stan. I had heard that he, um, he had done some work with the sort of microdose, you know, the concept of like highly diluting some amount, some quantity of LSD and using it on like a more ongoing basis um, for just kind of like general 
uh, augmentation of your daily life, you know, as opposed to like having this isolated trip experience of full blown psychedelic experience to, to have a slight, you know, elevation on a daily basis. Um, and I never felt like I really had the kind of like, uh, the schedule, uh, to, you know, to fit that into, um, and, or the, or, or for that matter, access to, uh, to the, to the substance. Um, but so I asked him some, you know, some basic questions like, you know, what are the implications there? Like, is, is there like a tolerance you build up or is there kind of a, does it, does it, is there, um, you know, some kind of a, uh, does it build up over time? Is there like a, an effect that builds over time? You know, do you, do you get better at it? Do you, you know, can you bring this stuff back? Um, I didn't articulate these questions very well, but I kind of asked him about this, this subject and, I'm sad to say I have no idea what he said. I just completely don't remember. Um, he, he basically told me, he, he was like, oh, if you're interested in that, talk to like this scientist who's, you know, reviewing it. And I was, I was basically like completely in awe, like meeting the celebrity of, of Stan Groff. He was part of a panel, I think, at that time. But in any case, um, it was pretty cool to get a signature. And I just double checked that, that this actually happened. I do have the signature framed at home. So uh, cool. next time I see you guys, you can, you can check it out. Um, yeah, but he, he was a good guy. I mean, he was very approachable. Were those modern, um, studies? Cause from what I read, um, that a lot of his LSD research, he kind of shelved, you know, once, once it was prohibited, he, he kind of started working on other methods of therapy. Was the microdosing something more contemporary or was it, you know, from the the fifties and the sixties? That's a good question. I don't know where I got it in my head, uh, that he was involved in that in some way or had been interested in that. Uh, somebody may have sort of tipped me off about it, or I may have read some, you know, some older study, uh, because you're right. I mean, he, he kind of, um, he's always been in the, you know, in the scene, uh, I think because of his early, uh, you know, experiences and his early leadership, but he did mm -hmm. sort of shift gears once it became illegal into his, you know, holotropic, uh, breath work, uh, just breath work in general, trying to induce these states, which we'll get into. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure I'd have to open up some old notebooks and see. Groff's kind of like, uh, I get, I get a kick out of like the, he's kind of a chameleon, right? He's like, I mean, he always maintains a, an air of, uh, of of academia, right? He's, I mean, he's like a a very, very like credible psychiatrist. I mean, he's he's a kind of um, part of the establishment, but also yet like a kind of a, a variable, like a free roamer, and uh, and he just seems to be kind of like extremely open minded and extremely uh, accepting, and it just kind of it doesn't have like. Um, such a such a like a, a fixed framework for everything it seems like he kind of like adapts very well to the to the times and uh, i mean in the case with lsd if it becoming uh it becoming illegal it's like he just took what he learned from it and then like moved on and applied it to other things and uh, actually like while i was reading this uh this interview he did with albert hoffman he says uh he has this one quote that i thought was cool he said whether or not lsd research and therapy as such will return into modern society, the discoveries that psychedelics made possible have profound revolutionary implications for our understanding of the psyche, human nature, and the nature of reality. And these new insights are here to stay as an important part of the emergence, emerging scientific worldview of the future. Yeah. Like, yeah. like <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, it's not being like rigid about your, your thinking to one extreme or to the other, just taking every new little piece of information and working it into like your universal theory for everything. You know? Right. And he, you know, beginning with LSD research, um, 
so he was he was among the people who received a sample from Hoffman from the lab. You know, when when Hoffman was sending out samples just to to collect feedback and say, Does, do you think this has any application and in psychology or in, in research? And so he, he had that ex, that experience in then. But then he was one of the the people who started a branch of psychology called transpersonal psychology. So it's basically um, known as, quote, spiritual psychology. So LSD is part of that, um, which is cool. I mean, he, he's like a, a founder of this branch of psychology at a time when even psychology itself uh, was emerging as a science, you know, and is, and is trying to establish itself as a science beyond, I think a lot of people thought of psychology generally as more of a pseudoscience in its early years. And of all of the fields in psychology that might, you know, fall victim to that label, transpersonal psychology is very much trying to talk about, you know, what what the bigger things like the humanistic side of things and the spiritual side of things. And so he, he did work with LSD, um, psilocybin, uh, mescaline, DPT, MDMA, uh, MDA. And then, as Joe mentioned before, he he eventually honed in on holo, uh, holotropic breathwork, so inducing these kind of states through no chemicals at all, just just using breathing. Yeah, I was actually really interested to learn that uh, holotropic was actually his term for uh, this sort of state of consciousness. Um, you know, it it basically what it it means moving toward wholeness. So, you know, you have holo, which is wholeness, uh, and uh, tropic, which is moving toward something. Um, so it was his term. He was, you know, dissatisfied with um, with the going terms. You know, once again, um, you know, altered states. Um, in fact, he has this great, uh, great narrative where he talks about just why that word, that term is so uh, inadequate uh, and inappropriate for this this kind of conversation, but you know, holotropic is referring toward just this this state, and so holotropic breathwork is you know the breathwork you would need that he would teach to help you get to this state without any you know use of psychedelic drugs, which makes a very interesting we're, we, the, a theme we constantly hit on is this relationship that uh you know altered states or that entheogens have with uh kind of eastern mysticism and uh and it's the breath work goes right back to to yoga and and all non-western uh techniques of breathing like for you know pranayama and and uh and it's even curious that it's you know he as you said explained uh the etymology of holotropic it's a word that uh, I've heard a lot used in um, in yoga meditation. is ta- is talking about uh, wholeness, wholeness of the mind, wholeness of the being. Right? Is like using uh, breath and other techniques to to kind of achieve that state of mind. It's interesting, though, um, the term that he coined. You know, because it, it implies that we're not whole and we need to move toward wholeness. You know, to to achieve a certain. Uh, you know, state um, where the reason that he describes wanting wanting to coin a term like this or needing a term like this is, you know, again, the inadequacy of the term altered states. Um, and this is, I, I should just quote from this paper he wrote, um, uh, you know, just sort of a, a retrospective about his 50 years in this, in this business, basically, in this, you know, just researching uh, these kinds of altered states. He talks about how the term altered states of consciousness commonly used by mainstream clinicians and theoreticians is not appropriate because of its one-sided emphasis on the distortion or impairment of the, quote, correct way 
of experiencing oneself in the world. You know, so he basically talks about how, you know, altered states refers to the fact that, you know, the normal state would be altered um, as opposed to, you know, his term, which is holotropic, um, moving toward wholeness, it kind of seems like it's still inadequate. I mean, it's still implying that there's a, you know, there's a state that you need to get to. That's not now. Really? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I see it that way. I, I think I see it as like, he's trying to explain that, um, our, we, we tend to, ex, ex, I don't know, we tend to have separate, uh, parts of our mind and separate parts of our psyche. And it's just kind of moving towards like, a. Like if they were a Venn diagram, it's like moving towards like greater overlap, mm-hmm. right? And it's like it's like we we have some overlap already. We're born with it, but we still have you know we have moments where like we're like very one way. Uh, we have like a, a very certain consciousness about things, and then we, and then we have this kind of like uh, un- unconscious that's that's working on it with its own agenda and everything. And I think it's kind of more about just bringing those things like into uh, ever greater contact. Yeah. I, can see I like that visual there. of like uh, the Venn diagram. I, 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 it strikes me as like wholeness being kind of knowing oneself and learning about oneself and where altered states, I think, may have what he viewed the pitfall is that there is not a lot of merit to inducing an altered state if that's what, you know, kind of we think about it. So to, to have a word like holotropic allows to have a conversation about what previously people might have thought of something as not having use not having merit to something that um being in a state a holotropic state um you know the the words affect the way that we feel about what we're talking about so he has this word that's like all right this is how we're going to learn more about ourselves through this state of mind through the state of consciousness as opposed to just you know being altered or you know perhaps that could be interpreted as like diminished or you know something some other yeah or or ethereal and not and not real you right, know, I mean, some kind of like delusion. Right, like a like a uh, it's it seems it implies that it's temporary. You know that it's it's altered for now, but you'll return to sort of baseline. Whereas I guess with holotropic, the idea is you may, you know, you may achieve a, a state of of wholeness. Uh, you you may, you know, be able to spend more and more time in that state, uh, that holotropic uh, state, uh, or that you'll never necessarily get there. But you're always you, it. You know, you can move towards it. I also kind of like that aspect, like, you know, the to never master, but always to be the student, to always be learning, to be growing, to to be moving toward wholeness. It seems like a really cool yep. state, you know. It does. I also like the, you know, to bring to bring it back to the mathematics. It's like if if you like the Venn diagram, how do you feel about asymptotes? Because <laughs> it's something that always kind of crosses my mind, and it's like it's like it's uh, that's kind of like the goal, right? It's like you're always getting closer, but you never really get there. It's just asymptotal. It's like you just keep getting closer and closer and closer, but it's impossible to actually fully get there. Right, but at some point you're, you know, you're. It's a rounding error, so you're just sort of, uh, you're sort of close enough, basically. <laughs> you still need to strive, though, to to be able to stay there. I think exactly. But I love, I love his, uh, I love his humor too. Like he goes on in this piece I was reading from, where he says, uh, it's a parenthetical statement in colloquial Eng- English, and in veterinary jargon, the term alter is used to signify castration of family dogs and cats. <laughs> 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 it's so great. I mean, his his humor is great because he's so he he just comes from such a like a scientist you know very uh like serious viewpoint um which i love you know that treatment of this subject uh but then he just throws in the humor there too which is a pretty deadpan but but pretty funny too yeah even even i remember in the um the radio interview you mentioned before which uh where where was that interview published that might be of interest to anyone who's listening 
Uh, we the, should put in the show notes. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Are you talking about uh, Beyond Awakening series? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. BeyondAwakeningSeries.com. Uh, it's a it's a guy named um, Terry Patton, and he he actually has on his site uh, a uh, this paper that I was reading from as well, which is uh, this, this a free sort of legacy paper uh, that Stan Groff wrote. Uh, just this sort of um, again the retrospective of like you know fifty years of, of psychedelic uh, and mystical state kind of research, and also just the rest of his um, you know thing, other things we may get into like his. Uh, uh, I guess cartography of the human psyche. You know, yeah. he's, he's kind of mapping out the the, the way the way our our uh, systems work. So well, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a, it's an interesting interview, and in uh, and, and like you said, his humor comes across at several points. And one of the ones that got me is when he's talking about how uh, when when he uh, when they first received uh, the LSD from Sandoz Laboratories, Hoffman's laboratory, the uh, they kind of like you know they sent the sample interested or hoping that these people would do a little bit of research and kind of like give them some use for this this new substance they had invented and they they kind of sent along a letter with some suggested uh, uses and one of them was like to help them to help a psychologist understand the mind of the insane person <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a big kick out of that that was pretty funny yeah you know the way he introduced that he, he puts it in the context of um, his just sort of general dissatisfaction with you know with modern psychology of the time and the lack of results you know the, the cost in, in time and energy uh, and you know and and money and he was just sort of generally dissatisfied and considering this, you know, reconsidering this path he had chosen for himself when this box arrives in 1956, I think it was, from Sandoz. Um, and they even included this sort of mysterious description of like the history of, of how it was discovered by Albert Hoffman. And this, you know, this just this way that he, you know, discovered its effects through just working with it and sort of, as we've mentioned in, in past episodes, this accidentally, um, you know, imbibing the substance through through uh, through a skin, basically skin contact. And, you know, he was basically intrigued by this. And as you mentioned, they they offered actually two avenues of research. They said, you know, first, uh, it could be used to induce an experimental state of psychosis in normal people. Like you could, you know, you could have this control group of like just, you know, otherwise, you know, in theory, normal people. Um, and you can induce a state of, of um, you know, uh, of psychosis that you could then study as a therapist. And secondly, uh, you know, this, this, the idea you mentioned that it could be used as an educational tool, an unconventional educational tool to induce the state in the therapist to know kind of what it's like inside the mind of, uh, of a crazy person. And, uh, <laughs> he, I guess circumstantially, he had to agree also to be, um, to go through this process of having his brain waves driven using some kind of like stereoscopic light effects and sound. It, it sounded to me like, um, you guys ever experienced these like binaural beats and things like that? No, like, what's that? So it's I like th- I'm picturing Dr. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future when you <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, there's you're gonna cause the paradox. <laughs> <laughs> there are these these systems you can you can buy, and it, I mean, I, my experience goes back about 15 years. It's probably been changed quite a bit, but you you have these these glasses that would have like LEDs in them, and they would blink. Uh, you know, the left and right eye would blink in different patterns, and you might also have a uh, like a soundtrack, uh, you know, in, in headphones. Uh, and again, the left and right channels would be slightly different. Uh, and the I think the difference uh, between like the left and right uh, 
um, I guess, I don't know if it's the frequency or something like that would basically, um, you, in your brain, your brain would sort of like, uh, uh, deduce the, the pattern between or the difference between the two. And mm. like, you'd have like a third beat kind of being entrained in your brain in some way, uh, or third, a third tone that wasn't actually there, but would, your brain would sort of like, um, you know, uh, extrapolate that. So it could induce different like uh, levels of consciousness. Like it could help you get into like alpha waves or beta or whatever um, in some way. So it reminded me of that kind of thing because basically he describes this experience of like, in addition to testing this, you know, new substance from Sandoz, fresh off the, you know, fresh out of the box from Sandoz. um, He also had this experience of having his brain waves driven using the stereoscopic light effect. And he says this basically brought him into this like overwhelming experience of cosmic consciousness uh, where he sort of had this sense of becoming everything there was. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean, he was completely transformed by this experience. Joe, the last part that you mentioned about these classes, when exactly was this in your life that you had this experience? Um, like I said, about 15 years ago, maybe. I mean, it was when I when I uh, purchased a, a, this equipment <laughs> and did some self-experimentation. Um, I still, I still have the glasses and, and, uh, and headphones and, and gear and stuff. Bring it to Burning Man. I will. Yeah, yeah. Good call. <laughs> All I'm thinking, I'm like, the whole time he's telling this story, I'm like, hey, you were like 20 years old or 19 years old when you did this? Like, did you, did you not have porn? <laughs> did you have like a bad internet connection at that some point in your life? <laughs> exactly. It was either dial up, uh, <laughs> dial up porn just, or it's just, no, no, I think it's, it's fascinating what you're saying. I was just like, I was not doing that when I was 19. <laughs> <laughs> we learned so much about each other in this show. It's true. It's true. But, uh, that, but that, that, that part I had not read. That's, uh, that's kind of fascinating. I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what to make of it. It's like that, that plus LSD at the same time. And yes. in, uh, you know, getting fresh boxes from Sandoz. It's, uh, yeah. What an yeah. exciting time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? And yeah. it was free. Yeah, exactly. They were, you know, they were just trying to find somebody who could do, make something of this stuff, you know, make some, find some, some use for it. Did you guys see uh, there was a New Yorker article from 2010 where John Mackey, one of uh, the co-founder and CEO of Whole Foods, um, talks about doing breathwork uh, with Stan? Interesting, no. Yeah, we talked about the other New Yorker article. So again, sort of you know things hitting hitting more popular streams of media. But this was the name of the. Uh, the name of the story was called Food Fighter. Does Whole Foods CEO know what's best for you? And it was written by Nick Palmgarten in the January 4th, 2010 edition of The New Yorker. And it's all about uh, John Mackey. And, and in part of it, he talks about in 2008 um, seeking uh, – so he sought succor in spiritual practice. Good word. Actually, my, my favorite part of the whole article that I read – was he makes reference to a Grafian epiphany. Nice. <laughs> As in Stanislav Graf, of course. Um, so here, I'm just going to read a little bit of the article that I thought was, was pretty cool. It says, during this period in 2008, Mackey sought succor in spiritual practice. He engaged a friend, a fellow, a follower of the Czech transpersonal psychologist Stanislav Graf to guide him through a therapeutic session of holotropic breathing. Quote, I had this very powerful session, very powerful. It lasted about two hours. Mackie said in a <laughs> in an inspirational CD, 
set he released last year. I'm sorry, who releases an inspirational CD set? <laughs> the dude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he was saying, so this is Mackie speaking, he said, I was having a dialogue with what I would define as my deeper self or my higher self. Um, he had a pair of epiphanies, one having to do with severed relationships that needed healing. The other was that, uh, quote, if I wanted to continue doing Whole Foods, there couldn't be any part of my life that was secretive or hidden or that I'd be embarrassed if people found out about, I had to let go of all that. Yeah, so that's a little bit about John Mackey having, you know, done some very modern work um, with Stanislav Grof. It reminds me in, in several places I've read uh, about Grof is, and it goes back to that New York article too, is that he talks about using, I mean, LSD back in the 60s, but all his, his uh, holotropic breath work as a as kind of a vehicle to, uh, to confront uh, to co- confront fear and eventually death and he it's like it's something that he brings up a lot and it's i don't know it's i guess it's something i'm not that conscious of myself about like am i really afraid of death and uh, i guess i haven't had any uh, a brush with death at least in a long time <laughs> and uh and so yeah i could i can i can totally see that it seems like um it's kind of like it's there it's under the surface it's this uh it's this force that has a serious uh bearing on your un- unconscious and it seems like something that you can you can totally confront and put at ease uh through through this type of therapy i always wonder when uh you know th- this is uh positioned as a successor to you know LSD therapy holotropic breathwork and i always think like it's like a wink, wink kind of thing. It's like, you know, now we're just going to breathe really well. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know, got to get to get the government off your back. You know, it's like, well, no, 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 no. Now we're doing breath work. It's fine. It's all good. Like, 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 like they have like an acid vaporizer in the room or something. <laughs> exactly. Right. Everyone just breathe real deep. Exactly. Well, there, if you look online, you know, his, the holotropic breathwork website there's not a lot of, there's not a ton of information on it you know it seems it's very high level in its description i think you know that's the idea is you to get more uh, to learn more about it the, the best thing to do is to get involved but uh but it, I, I was really curious i'm like what goes on like how does the breathing work does it happen over a per- period of days or weeks but i couldn't find um, much information online about how the holotropic you know practice works it's also a also, trademark. I was I was interested to learn. It's a it's you know he he trademarked the term, uh, which I'm not you know I don't fault him for that. I mean if it's if it's his thing, why not protect it? But uh, but yeah, I guess you can study with him, and then you know I don't know. I think he's retired now, but um, you know m- many people have been trained by him to to uh, teach this practice, and then you know therefore they're also minting new uh, new practitioners, but. Um, but yeah, you think you're right. I mean, I think you, you just have to have that primary experience. I don't know if you can sort of read about it. Field trip. Yeah. yeah. When we uh, when we did the the interview a few weeks back with uh, with Mariana, she mentioned uh, Groff was was a was a big person for her. Ah, good point. And, uh, I wanted to mention that too. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I just it seems she she how did, what did she say? She described. Running the first time, right? She, was the first time his, she had altered state. Um, yeah, yeah. She read his, one of his books, and I think uh, that was her inspiration. I don't remember which book she was reading, um, uh, but uh, but yeah, that was that that like kind of launched her onto this path. Yeah, I remember she was. She said, I think originally she was studying architecture, and then she came across one of his books, 
and it completely changed her life and, and her career. And I, lo- I looked at uh, the books that he'd written thinking I'd be able to pick it out, but was the guy's it? written 24 books. Yeah, exactly. He's written quite a few. I was wondering if it was uh, LSD psychotherapy because it's kind of in her, in her wheelhouse. Um, yeah, could be. But in any case, yeah, I mean, for, for listeners that are interested, we're, we're talking about Mariana Dinkova, uh, who we interviewed a, a couple of episodes back. So check us out at uh, entheogenshow.com and, and you'll find that episode. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really amazing to see how this stuff um, trickles down. You know, it's like somebody gets inspired and then, and then it, it weaves its way through the tapestry of uh, human, you know, experience. And uh, here we are, you know, talking about all these crazy people. Yeah, but that that struck me how prolific he was, you know, so with the work that he was doing, um, the 24 books he'd written, first one being in 1975, and then his most recent one published in 2012, you know, he's still alive, he's still doing these interviews like the one we'd mentioned before, and he's he's still, you know, he's still uh, um, contributing in a, in, a, in a serious way. Groff, you can, you can kind of put up put up in the in the Hoffman category as this uh kind of le- legitimizing uh force like he's like he, you know if we, if we were to make a mount rushmore <laughs> would put uh, <laughs> 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 that idea <laughs> a mount rushmore of uh of founding fathers here <laughs> you know we, we, he'd, he'd be one of them it's he's a, a legitimizing force like a serious uh extremely serious intellectual and academic who uh, is has all the merit in the world and uh, is able to kind of uh, give give uh, give legs to the the whole movement. It's not uh, it doesn't it doesn't have to be fringe in any way when you have uh, when you can count on guys like this for some from some really serious work and research. One aspect I was I was curious about in context of some of your recent studies, Kevin. Um, he talked about uh, prenatal and perinatal psychology. Um, and so, you know, and Wikipedia says, uh, prenatal and perinatal psychology is an interdisciplinary study of the foundations of health and body, mind, emotions, and an enduring response patterns to life. It explores the psychological and psychophysiological effects and implications of the earliest experiences of the individual before birth, which is prenatal, as well as during and immediately after childbirth, perinatal, uh, on the health and learning ability of the individual and their relationships. And it kind of seems like that fits a little bit in the context of some of the other things you've been you've been uh, you know mentioning, um, but this goes kind of like to the very beginning and, and doesn't go toward like the family tree kind of history stuff, but it's like to the to the roots of the of the individual. Yeah, it's almost like those things are inseparable, right? If you were to talk about something like a family, uh, the, the subconscious of a family, right? It's like maybe you know, obviously, for you to access any kind of memories that happen at, you know, at, the, at those early stages of life, it's absolutely impossible. But, but perhaps, uh, what's happening there at the early parts of life is, is the, the transfer in some way, and maybe just in a chemical level of the things that have happened previously in your family, hmm. right? Like, like the, the, the kind of family history woven into uh, some, some sort of like chemical framework that's then passed on to you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's clearly that's the, the moment at which it happens. Yeah, yeah, it's um, 
I almost uh, <laughs> refrain from saying my my favorite psychologist, Holodowski's name, because I know that Joe and his uh, wife are just waiting to like make fun of me about mentioning his name again. But because I've just been so so into everything uh, he writes. But yeah, it's one thing he harps on a lot is that it's like uh, you. It doesn't matter what you tell someone, a younger person in the family. It's like events, the things that happen are registered in the family subconscious and uh you know those those things manifest themselves in all kinds of like no, you know not nonverbal ways and it's inevitable that they're that they're passed on so that it's like when someone is dealing with a particular issue it may not even be their own per se it may have a cause that's a generation or two back that uh that has kind of been passed along the line so I, I, I mean, I can when when Groff gets to that about the about the moments after birth or whatever, it's like it, yeah, those things seem seem related. It's like whatever's happening there, uh, it seems it seems pretty important. The conditions that it happens in, I mean, like Holodowski makes a point. It's like when you have uh, the difference between the two people who decide to have a child, like two people who are in love and decide to have a child what's happening there down to the most like chemical level when they actually conceive a child as to as compared to like another situation where it's you know the child is unwanted or whatever else it's like they're i don't know it seems you know it's a very difficult thing to prove obviously but it seems to it seems to make a lot of sense yeah it's really interesting stuff so i mean his his um stan groff's research definitely stretches beyond you know just like the the entheogenic sort of uh area um you know specifically lsd in his case um and you know his experiments with other other compounds as well but um into just you know general sort of um psychological concepts and things and you know one illustration of of that that topic that you were just mentioning is he has a theory, he had a theory i guess he he presented a theory in the 70s um about you know what a near death experience is and he he thought that it had a lot of characteristics that were reminiscent of the the you know of birth of childbirth like for example you know the tunnel and the light at the end of the tunnel and this kind of thing mm. um, and it's a little bit too um, I don't he know. caught a lot of flack for that yeah I guess he did I mean it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it seems a little bit like uh, um, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> poorly thought out, right? I mean, or something like um, the criticisms are, are pretty obvious, almost like, well, the you know the 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 the, uh, the fetus would not really, um, or the the uh, you know the child would not really be like seeing a tunnel per se. You know, has nothing to do with the tunnel right. really. So, um, so I don't know. It's it's strange, but he, I mean, he did that. That's kind of a very like spot on interpretation of like how these things affect you know affect later in life, but. Um, it doesn't necessarily negate the rest of his uh, of his contributions. Right. He was, I, I like the way that they um, that it's described how his his the way he would approach therapy as regressional, where um, you know he thought it would help to relive troubling parts of your life, um, and and that reliving them may be essential in the process of like overcoming them, and that. LSD and, and other, you know, forms of therapy is the idea to to go back and, and dive into that and see what's there. And to get there and to come back was essentially what he was attempting to do with, I mean, with his cartography. So, carto like, creating a map of the psyche, that's, that was, that's 
a huge contribution of his to transpersonal psychology is, you know, he, instead of just talking about it as feelings and seeing where it goes, let's, you know, create a framework, let's create a map to, to get there and back. So he definitely put a lot of stuff out there and some of it, you know, he was criticized for as not being, you know, accurate, but, you know, he was putting it out there to be tested. It wasn't a lot of what he would, he talked about wasn't necessarily based on research and findings he was you know making suggestions for then science to explore i i think that's uh that's really fascinating because part of what you know what i don't know i mean this thing what groff has done has gone into a million different branches of psychology and influenced a ton of different people but um i'd have to say like it and i don't know we could do an entirely different episode about this but for me, one of the shortfalls of the the only well, the only time I mean, I guess I guess except for when I was a lot younger that I've ever gone to a a therapist for traditional like psychoanalysis. I guess my feeling was a lot like what Mariana mentioned, and a lot like what like uh, Groff mentioned when he got into psychology. It's like. It's like some, you know, you're you're talking about your life to a, a person, and you're about the the these kind of issues that are important, and it's really it's just like a lot. It's like, it's like very time consuming. You get to like a a point where you're, and a lot of times you're like very aware. Nothing that is being said to you surprises you. It's like you get to a point, and it's like, well, you know, I've, I've been, we've been talking now for like this period of time, and I've told you these things, and, and I told you why I think um, these things are true. And it's really like, you know, the psychologist kind of like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, and it's like, all right, well, what are you supposed to do about it? You know, and it's kind of like, that's the that's kind of a shortfall to me. And when I, when you talk of psychoanalysis, obviously, there's that's grossly underestimating the range of possibility. But but uh, but for me, I, I just it just always felt like that. And it sounds like it sounds like what Groff said when he got into psychology is kind of like, really, is this the best we can do? Yeah. And and he yeah, and he really wanted to push the envelope and and what you talked about Brad about him wanting to revisit through you know, whatever altered state or holotropic state you want to use about revisiting uh, particularly difficult times or uh, traumas in the past in order to like liber- liberate yourself from them. Mm-hmm. So that was fascinating. I, like uh, the experience I compare it to is going to I went to a practitioner of. Um, of what uh, I don't in I don't know if it's called the same way in English. It's called here. It's called bio decodification. It's like a type of therapy that uh, that basically does that. It's like uh, you're you're put into you're kind of coached into a visualization about a specifically uh, difficult uh, experience that uh, has kind of caused a psycho emotional circuit. And uh, through revisiting that, it's you kind of like break that circuit or relive it. And I only went, I, went, I did this once in my life, but it was a fascinating experience with profound results. And uh, I'd say of all the things I've ever done for for one one session, I did it for it's probably the most Im- uh, impactful thing I've ever seen or done in my life. And when you when I read Groff, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it, I get it. It's like you, there is there's a lot to be said for that. It's like just going back and revisiting something when you're not in it anymore and it's not a first person type of experience is seems to be pretty profound. Hmm. Can you guys put your finger on what what Groff's like core contribution is? You know what what puts him in this continuum of of uh, 
of, of founders. I mean, it's, you know, he's certainly, I wouldn't, wouldn't take away anything. Uh, he's, he's a, he's a great, you know, uh, contributor to this overall, uh, psychedelic, um, you know, knowledge base. And, but I mean, is there, is there one specific thing like that you could identify that he, that we have him to thank for? If I did, I would refer to it as a Graphian epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, we're t- in the context of you know entheogen. What we talked about, he's got a place. You know, clearly with the, with his early research with LSD. But I, you know, I think his his life and his career. He he put so much energy into the the cartography of the psyche, and being one of the 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 people who created transpersonal psychology. That seems like what. Uh, like the cornerstone of his career and that he's been building off that and the, the you know we can talk about him because he 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 exists and he played by the rules so to speak you know like and he, he continued to build his career in the framework that that he you know grew up in and learned in and and then educated in as well so i guess maybe my answer to your question is transpersonal psychology seems to be like a, his biggest contribution and everything surrounding um, holotropic states and, and, and other forms of consciousness are the, uh, the holotropic icing on the transpersonal cake. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. You're right. I think that, 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 uh, you know, his, that contribution to just psychology in general, um, you know, it just also serves to legitimize, uh, you know, LSD research as well, which he was an early proponent proponent of. So, um, yeah, we definitely can can thank him for for that. Yeah, or how about just a, like a perspective and like a kind of a set of values? It just seems like I don't know. It I've just been uh, things I've been reading and watching lately. It's kind of like the uh, just I just watched, rewatched. Um, Shulgin's Shulgin's documentary Dirty Pictures and uh which kind of goes through the early early years of uh him resynthesizing MDMA and then it, it it's it's use in uh in all different types of therapy and then how it becomes illegal and you just kind of see the two ways to consider these things in the world it's like this uh I don't want to call it the establishment way because it depends who's part of the, the establishment even though the establishment tends to be conservative and can vary to like extremely conservative, but it's like seeing the the, pe- the people who made all of these all these things illegal in the especially in the '60s as a response to the the cultural movement that was going on. It just seems it's it's like a breath of fresh air to see somebody who's like who's got all the all the criteria to judge this type of thing and just uh, can, can see only can see only the benefits. Uh, of you know, and the learning that can happen from from this type of thing. Yeah, exactly. He 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 sort of uh, operated from inside of the establishment to some extent by you know persevering through the persecution of uh, this type of uh, compound and these substances, and you know did his work, just kept on you know plugging away and contributing to you know the betterment of of humankind, um, but at the same time remained firmly in the camp of you know our side of things, you know, uh, you, you know, just reporting back on, on his uh, positive results. And yeah, he's, so I guess what you're saying is he's, he's a good dude <laughs> from a values perspective. Yeah. He's, he's a, good, it's, he's a valuable person. 
So one one last question that I have, um, which is, you know, I found interesting that he he brought this up uh, again in the context of his first LSD trip. Um, you know, he was just sort of launched into this, you know, super conscious, you know, cosmic conscious state um, that he it sounds like he just was not expecting, um, and he had the experience of basically he came back with the idea that uh, you know consciousness was a I guess a property of reality you know, that, that we can experience, um, and, and we can, uh, you know, um, we, we can benefit from, but it was not something that was created by the brain. Um, he disputes that. I mean, in, in the same, uh, interview we, we discussed, he, he disputes that a couple of times where he talks about how, um, it, it's, he, there's never been a study that, uh, you know, that, that demonstrates in some way or proves that, uh, consciousness is a side effect of some function of the brain or, you know, comes from the, you know, neural networks and things like that. He, he was, he, he was just basically convinced that, you know, consciousness is a thing that is a, is something that happens in reality and, you know, we're privy to it. And so have we talked, have we talked about this? Sorry to interrupt you, but this is something I think about all the time. And <laughs> I feel like whatever it crosses my mind, I'm like, man, have I feel like this we haven't given this enough energy or attention, this idea of like where con- consciousness exists. Uh, you're, are you talking about in the, the radio interview? Like I remember him talking about it then as yes. well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I interrupted you. Did What was the question that you had? Well, I, you know, I'm wondering what you guys think about it. I, I just think it's such an interesting question. Oh, good. I was hoping that was going to be your question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, such a, it's such a profound question. And I think that um, we, we lack the, the real <laughs> tools yet to, to figure it out. Is it, it the holotropic icing on your transpersonal <laughs> <case>? <laughs> But you know, it just occurs to me, like, how do we how do we um, ask that question from inside of this experience, you know, and and how um, and and yet uh, these guys are trying to do that, you know, Groff among them, and uh, so you know, you come back from these experiences like completely convinced, like this is just wow, okay, now I get it, um, but you don't know why, and you can't prove it, really, you know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's been my experience in, in several cases. And I live my life as if I, I'm not really sure, you know, and uh, it kind of seems like it, to me that consciousness is, it could be considered a byproduct of some, you know, um, a mechanical system you know, of the, of the brain. Uh, and, and actually not just the brain, really the mind, kind of the neurological system, you know, the brain at the top and then like all the neurons that reach throughout the whole body. It's like a system, right? And then like the, 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 um, what's emanating from that system is like a consciousness, you know, and, and the metaphor that people use is like the TV tuning in a station, right? When TVs used to tune in a station using, you know, radio frequencies and, uh, the workings of the TV have some correlation to the station that's being tuned in, but the station that's being tuned in exists apart from the TV that's tuning it. But then again, if the station were there without the TV being there, it's not really there. Dude, what so. the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> no, I know. That's, that's my <laughs> answer to my own question. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. No, I was going to mention that too, the analogy that's been given of sort of like uh, instead of consciousness being something that's created from the brain, it's the brain is really more of a receptor of consciousness. And that consciousness exists between people, between all living things, between all matter, between all, you know, stuff we see, stuff we don't see. Um, I, you know, I think different people believe that the consciousness extends and is inclusive of different things. But yeah, and that's sort of what, what Stanislav Stan was, was had mentioned, like after his first trip, he sort of got this perspective that, you know, consciousness 
is this one collective thing that we kind of tap into. Um, and it's when, when you think about things in that way, there are a lot, it, it, you know, it, I'm tripping over my words cause I don't want to say it makes sense because it doesn't really make sense because it can't be proven, you know, but at the same time it does kind of, it resonates, it feels right. Um, it's and Kevin, I would say it's the consciousness cherry on the on the holotropic <laughs> icing. <laughs> the holotropic <laughs> sundae. <laughs> I don't know what the banana is in the banana split, but um, we'll get there. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that's that's a that's a fascinating debate that uh, I think we can we could take for hours and hours. I mean, uh, there are so yeah, many yeah, angles to see that on. Yeah, no, no, definitely. It's a very, very cool, uh, cool area to explore. And I was actually thinking about that earlier in this conversation about, you know, birth, like the idea of experiences and emotions coming from like birth or, you know, prenatal experiences and, and having these moments in your life where you sort of learn your family's DNA or it's, you know, your family's DNA is part of you and these experiences manifest in emotions or knowledge, um, that, you know, it, on one side you could say it's biological and it happens, you know, these, these genes are passed down or and maybe another way or in addition that they're that, you know, because we're a fam like the people in your family sort of have this brand of receptor or a particular type of way of understanding consciousness that's slightly different than people from other families or people from other cultures. My family's receptor is bald. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very happy about that. <laughs> well, there's less interference from the uh, the hair, you know. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> More pure signal tuning capabilities. You were you were evolved like, for that, so I would like a little bit more icing on my cake. <laughs> it's your cross to bear. It is a fascinating subject. We should definitely explore that um, in a future episode and uh, maybe even under the influence. You know, we have to kind of, uh, I think we have to come. That's a we have great to, idea for a show, right? Right. right? Like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I just think I it's going to end with me being like, I forgot to start recording. Get at least do like a holotropic breath show. <laughs> right. It's just us breathing the whole show. Well, or I could just like come up the stairs from the first floor and then, and then just do the show, you know. That was Entheogen, three human beings discussing generating the divine within while still being human beings. We've been discussing Stan Groff this episode, and we invite you to join us at entheogenshow.com. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin.